to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I'm Cecily Link, and we're starting another album, so that means we're doing another album introduction episode. And so we're going into the fifth album. We're already on album number five. It has been two years since I started this massive project, and I'm already on album number five. I'm super excited to be talking about Hounds of Love, and with me to introduce this album is a fan who has been on the show before and frankly you know if we lived in the same city i feel like we'd be hanging out all the time and talking about kate bush and all that fun stuff we have none other than hi i'm zoe p here i'm here to annoy you again um ha! never so, yeah so previously we have been on the hunt um yes. like in the wedding list and now we are hunting <laughs> like the hounds of love so hunting for more analysis more um more talk, more enriching conversation about the one and only Kate Bush that unfortunately we have to have via phone, but um, but we can have <laughs> internationally because Cecily has guests from all over the world. And I'm super, I'm really happy and excited to talk about Hounds of Love. Because, I know. Um, I've, I've been talking a lot. I was on, I feel like kind of most of the episodes <laughs> for the last, for Lionheart, Never Forever, and The Dreaming. And I'm going to, I think I'm pleased only thing for Hello Earth on Hounds of Love, and um, and so I'm really happy to get to talk about it because I do love it a lot. But a lot of people love it, so a lot of people want to talk about it. I'm going to kind of let them do that. Um, and to be frank, I have been frank about this. Her first four albums, or her first five albums, that to me are like by far her best. I um, there, I have been on the podcast historically. Uh, kind of, if you were listening to it, you might be surprised that I'm the person doing the Hounds of Love intro because you might, I might have come off as if I don't like this album because I kind of talk about how I find it overrated. I don't find it overrated. I love this album a lot. Um, I just find it, I guess what bothers me is how much people only focus on it mm-hmm. and not other ones, especially Never Forever and Lionheart um, and The Dreaming, but the dreaming is kind of really well known amongst our fans. So I'm really excited to talk about why I love this album and what it means to me, because it does have a lot of deep personal significance for me. And I think it does have a lot to unpack and explore and mm-hmm. marks a really important part in her career. And as her most well-known album and her most popular album, um, it's a really important part of music history too, because this is the most like popular and well-liked album by one of the most important musicians of, I would say, all time, okay, Mozart, whatever, but um, <laughs> of our time. So so it's really, it's exciting to get to talk about her, what some people, even though I consider doing her magnet opus, what some people consider her magnet opus, and, and, to, di- really, and to dive into the wave after wave, each mightier than the last. So, yeah, Hounds of Love was released in a couple of different places uh, at a couple of different times. But the first time it was released was in the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand on September 16th, 1985. And of course, it's worth noting that the lead off single running up that hill had just come out the month before. Um, it finally, a deal with God. Don't forget. <laughs> yes. I know a deal with God. Cause that's how it's, that's cause that's how she thinks of the song is still a deal with God. Um, yeah, it was supposed to be called Deal with God, but her rec- the record people said that it would be too controversial for Christian countries. But so, you know, I'm always like, 
running out that handle of parentheses, a deal with God. And that part always reminds me that, yeah. my eyes roll like, really? You think people would get pissed about that? I mean, anyway. You, ne- you never know. They play this. And I, you know, running out that is also a good title. It's made for some good memes, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it got finally got over to our shores in North America on October 8th, 1985. So it came out a couple couple weeks later. And then it got re-released with bonus tracks in 1997. That, however, is not the CD version I have, um, which will, when we get to talk about our personal, like, our personal thoughts on the album. My version is probably one of the older ones, but it didn't have the extra bonus tracks on it. That came out in 97, and then it got remastered on vinyl in the UK in... 2000 remastered on vinyl US August 2010 and then came out in Europe on Kate's Fish People label on March sorry May 16th 2011 and interesting um is as of 1998 this has sold 1.1 million copies worldwide mm-hmm. yeah and this also is a really big turning point in her career because the dreaming unfortunately was not as commercially successful as the label executives had hoped, although she herself always stands by it and says, well, it went to number three. That was successful for me. Mm-hmm. I really, even I love in interviews from this era, she still always, when people are like, well, your last album's like, no, it was successful. I'm happy with it. For example, so, so anyways, um, and there was kind of this, oh, at this point, people thought she had been taking too long to make, to come out with another album. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, okay. So let, let's just take a pause there. But anyways, but at this point, she had not come out for an album for what that was what at the time was considered too long. Just you wait, and um, and people kind of thought she had faded. There were all these rumors that like she had gained a hundred pounds and wasn't hiding. That she had gone crazy. That she had um, and there was like in one apparently in one of the big music magazines NME. I don't remember which one. There was this article like Kate Bush like as kind of one of the like. Like, like people of the past, where are they now? And apparently, like literally just a few weeks after that was published, "Running Up That Hill" came out as a single. Mm-hmm. She appears on Wogan performing it. It's a smash. "Hounds of Love" knocks um, "Like a Virgin" off the number one spot. But yeah, speaking of "Like a Virgin," this is also a really interesting cultural moment because there was a really big shift between cultural shift between the Dreaming and um, "Hounds yes. of Love." I mean, Madonna. Yeah, Madonna came on the scene who also changed the landscape of what it was to be a woman in pop music um music videos were becoming mtv became Mm -hmm. like a thing so kate was existing now as this album artist in a kind of mtv world this was her first album where she's kind of like in an mtv world and she didn't really do a running up that hill the video actually was not played on mtv because mm-hmm. it was considered too esoteric but they did play the wogan performance but she didn't really do many but besides that she didn't really do much mtv stuff um until yeah. some mtv interviews that are on youtube for central world but it's interesting to think about this as her first album in the mtv era um and there's a quote where she said um where let me find it where, because just kind of in terms of thinking about how this is such a new era, she actually was said in an interview, I've never even, from the time, I've never even seen a Madonna video and I don't like pop music much. Mm-hmm. So it's weird because Hounds of Love, everyone says like, oh, she, she kindly was, she was like really tuned into what was going on at the time. It's in and out, you know, like she's both within and removed from what's currently happening in pop music. There's yes. since, you know, but there's like, when I 
hear certain songs. You hear, I feel like on this album, you hear songs you think they sound like, oh, this sounds very 80s for sure. But especially the big certain ones, like the big sky, especially even running up that hill. But at the same time, there's something removed about it. Like, you know, you don't have other pop stars having Tennyson quotes from the back sleeve of the album. She's singing about like the fear of the imagination, which plenty of people were. But in, so it's just interesting how she's, she's like everyone's saying like, oh, this is kind of her most accessible work, but she wasn't even intending it to be at all. People mm-hmm. kind of thought at the time, oh, this is like a response to the dreaming being not commercial. She's trying to be more commercial, but it really wasn't. It just kind of corresponds with how she was feeling at the time, which we'll talk about impacted the making of the album a lot, but it really was a seismic cultural change between 1981 yeah. and 1985. And when, when we were, when I was looking over the notes that, we were doing about this for, for this episode and you had said that it's both of and not of its time. Yeah. It is totally right because on the one hand and me listening to it, some of the drums do sound very eighties. They just, mm-hmm. there's something about the way they EQ'd those drums that it just sounds eighties. But on the other, what other album of that time has something like jig of life then right. we have Hello Earth with a Georgian folk song in it or it, with um, Broken Glass from kind of Babushka style and Mother Stands for Comfort mm-hmm. or constant you know, dun, 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 like a march for like you have all these influences that are just like not many people are no one else is putting these things together all in one. But yet some of the production, yeah, some of the drums do still sound very yeah. distinctly 80s. Yeah, I feel like Running Up That Hill is kind of the one that you would hear, them, and The Big Sky, but are the ones where you hear most like, oh, these are like 80s mm. songs. So for example, like there's a party I like to go to. I don't go every month. Um, it's like a new wave slash goth, like dark wave 80s <laughs> dance party in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. And they... I have this unique talent for leaving parties right before they play Running Up That Hill. This has happened multiple times where, like, I leave because I'm 85, and some of my friend, whoever friend I'm with, will text me and say, oh, my God, they just played Running Up That Hill. But, anyways, at a lot of, like, kind of, there are a lot of, like, in New York and other places, like, 80 theme parties, and they often will play Running Up That Hill, but that's it in terms of, you know, they're not going to play Jig of Life. They're not going to play... like the other thing, like even things from side, they're not going to really play cloud busting. The only times I've heard those at parties is when I went to like specific Kate Bush parties and like Jig of Life at a Kate Bush party, popped off, is what I'm going to say. I thought, oh man, yeah. goes off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, also in ter- I think it's an interesting album to think of in terms of her own development as an artist and a person because just mm-hmm. for me as like a super fan who loves to really who loves to watch all her interviews there's something about her where like it just really feels like when you watch these interviews it's been about like three or four years since most of her ones in the dreaming era and it's you really have seen her grow up yeah like you, you see her from the kick inside era interviews where she's really has her heart on her sleeve and so she, and it, around this time whenever you read interviews people always describe her as the, the worthy of guarded. And understandably, and as she should be, her privacy is important. But I think this is definitely the era in which she has become the most guarded she's ever been. Yes. And because and with the dreaming, 
even though she it was really protective of her privacy, there's still something about when you watch an uh, interview like the one she has with Paul Gambaccini, where she's talking in this way that's like really passionate and effusive about her work and what it means to her. And she still is passionate. She still is passionate about her work in interviews, but it feels more, um, it doesn't feel as much as, as I said, like her heart on her sleeve. Like she, she's kind of putting up a wall a little bit yeah. to kind of keep some of it to herself. And I think part of that is because she did a lot of press for this album, including yes. going to America when oh some especially disastrous instances. Um, but I think because she has to, like, for example, with cloud busting, that poor woman has to repeat the same, the, and the question of, like, what's cloud busting out? She has to repeat the same thing in every interview for, like, two years. Like, mm-hmm. of course she's going to come off as more guarded and rehearsed. Um, but, like, for example, I'm thinking of on when she was on the old grade whistle test for the dreaming, if you look, um, they, they mentioned like, Oh, Percy Edwards is on this. And she had this really cute moment where she goes, yeah, she's really excited. You don't really see her in those like mo- those girl, like excited, like moments in the hounds of love and moving right. forward, like sensual world and stuff or interviews. It's more of, like, as I said, it's kind of like she's grown up and that it, it, it's so it's interesting as a fan to watch too. And, I'll talk about this more later. I really love this album. I feel a sense of loss on it because I really adore her more higher pitch vocals. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about this in my own thoughts the album. But that also kind of relates to like the growing up element of it, of like girl to woman. And I think, and we'll talk more about this later, about why I think this is one of her most popular albums. I think yeah. people are more comfortable with that grown up version than with the like, um, people aren't comfortable with girly things and girlishness. So yeah, mm-hmm. but it's interesting just to kind of watch her evolve, not just as an artist, but like as a public figure. In yeah. This and it's worth noting that uh, there does, she definitely did so much more press for hounds of mm-hmm. love than she did for the dreaming, including like you mentioned going, yeah, going to America. And unfortunately, you know, I have to, I'm sorry on behalf of my, you know, some of my countrymen who call it racing up that hill instead women. of running up that Country hill. Women. It was a, it was a woman. It was a woman. When we're, if you don't know what we're talking about, just look up Kate Bush Night Flight. Enjoy yourself. Oh, and yes. I, I personally want to do an entire Night Flight episode. Cecily has resist because she refuses to even watch the whole thing. I am a Night <laughs> I Flight will fan do girl. It. I've ri- no, I've I will do it. it multiple times. I love it. I have the pop. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll do, do it. it. We'll, we're anyway, going to do it. We're we'll going to do it. After the season. Yes. Well, It'll after the season, a bonus, <laughs> a bonus episode or like for our Patreon supporters, which, by the way, if you like the show and like what we're doing, patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast, you can contribute. I, I think the whole world needs, I think the whole world needs to be exposed. Yes. Anyway. anyway. But yeah. I just, it's... If I hear about Night Flight, I, get this, I, I become like Kate. Early Kate <laughs> and get really distracted. So. But yes, it. she was doing, all, but Kate did a lot of press for the, I mean, she still, she didn't do concerts for this album at all because oh her doing live i've never never heard that she doesn't perform concerts yeah i know right so yeah she even she did in america there was this big event and like you i used to some people on patreon who met her this way and i've heard about people meeting Mm -hmm. her this way where she went to new york and uh, i was just born six years too late for this to go and i couldn't really gone instant anyway and um and she what she did a signing at tower records that apparently the line went like blocked down because mm-hmm. she had built more of an American fan base with the dreaming. And that was like pretty much her like first American like public record signing type appearance. 
So this was her America. I mean, and when I talk to people, any time, like if I meant, if I'm talking to pretty much anyone like over age 40 ish, and I'll mention Kate Bush, go, oh, yeah, running up that hill. Mm-hmm. So that Same was very much her calling card in America. Like it's, even more so than Mothering Heights. And speaking of which, I mean, this. This album charted, of course, this album charted very well in the UK, um, entered in at number one and was 64 weeks on the charts. And in the US, this was the first of her albums to, to like go into the top 40 in America. It actually peaked at number 30 on December 14th, 1985. And she also got her only, to this date, American top 40 hit with Running Up That Hill because it was a huge hit on college radio. Yeah. So this was yeah. her, her like, hey, wait a minute, we're building up more of an American fan base here, a little bit here. And there was, um, there was actually an interview I watched earlier today where she was, it wasn't Night Flight, but it was another American interview. I'll have to, I'll have to was link it. it. Was it Robin? Um, there's it was one a, interview, it's like, a, she's a woman because she's, she's like my local anchor. No, Sue, I can't remember It was a name, Sue something or like, other. Yeah, yeah, Susan Simmons, Susan Simmons, yeah, she's my, I like, I always, she's like my local anchor, and I ah. really liked her growing up, and so then I saw that, and I was like humiliated, I was like, oh, no, no, <laughs> it was, it was like a person, it felt personal, but she, she is very weird, she acts very, she's getting all the notes wrong, um, mm. it's, it's a very strange interview, but uh, it's very, it is weird, because I grew up with Sue Simmons, and Kate Bush came into my life much later, so it's weird because like seeing someone used to watch in like a kid show with someone who's like your idol now. It's like, oh, world colliding. Anyway, it's not relevant, but <laughs> American women interviewing Kate Bush has been a interesting pattern. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she came over here and did some press. So she was, it seemed like she was more omnipresent than she'd been in quite a while, maybe even since the beginning of her career. Oh, yeah, this was in the UK, especially. This was like the biggest she had ever been since she came out. Yeah. And and also along with that, the critical reception on this album was pretty universally uh, well received across all borders. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, a lot of people wrote like this one, this guy, uh, Gene Solanas in, Solanas in NME said, it's an obvious progression of the skill shown on the dreaming um, and Melody Maker, she's way out of sync with everything else that's going on, going down right now. Here she has learned you can have control without sacrificing passion. Um, somebody from Dermot. That's interesting, though. She's way out of sync with everything that's going down mm-hmm. right now. Going down now, because it's kind of speaking, like, because clearly she wasn't if it hit a nerve, but she also is. You know, it proves that she can be, like, and also when you watch injuries this time, it's like the shoulder pads, the hairspray, oh, very 80s. Yeah. <laughs> she looks so 80s. But, um, but so she is in that, tapping into that nerve, but also out of that nerve. I think that's why people like this so much. I think that's why probably for people, especially at the time, whose first exposure to Kate Bush was this album was probably really cool because there was like a little, like they listen to Running Up That Hill and be like, okay, this is like, I like this, and then like get pulled into something that's more that's that's different. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say that. Um, so the first we- the first week that Running Up That Hill entered the charts, and I know this is going to come up in the Running Up That Hill episode, but um, the first week it entered the charts was the week that my husband was born, and for fun mm. one time I it put gave to- birth to him. I put to <laughs> like the Rockman radio gave birth to me because the same year that I was born. 
So I put together a YouTube playlist of what was in the top 20 or something like the week that my husband was born. And I did one for the U.S. and I did one for the U.K. And the U.K. one obviously had Running Up the Hill. And I will say, listening to what was playing, what was else was on in the top 20 on the charts when Running Up That Hill debuted at number nine on August 16th, 1985, is an interesting experience because everything else around it, now I love 80s pop, I really do, but everything else around it, around Running Up That Hill is so different. Mm. Like, it, it's, I listen to it and I, go, and I just... Like everything else, it's so it's so poppy and mainstream, mm-hmm. and then you get to running mm-hmm. up that hill, and it's so it's dreamy, it's different from all the other songs, and it's it's a shock to me that there was a time where you could turn on the radio and you would hear Kate Bush regularly on the radio. And in England, in you England. still do. Like, my, yeah, it, like you could. She plays in Sainsbury's, which is their supermarket. I, you know, like, like, oh. like, I, like people hear cloud busting and stuff. Like, I had a friend who's like, oh yeah, cloud busting plays in Sainsbury. I thought of you, but oh. and it, but um, but yeah, it's interesting. We say that because it reminds me, like that has been what her career has been. Because when Wuthering Heights was was number one, the song that knocked off the charts was "Take a Chance on Me" by ABBA. Oh yeah. So that's speaking to how she has always been this outlier within whatever else is going on because yeah. everything else in the charts when she first came out was like was disco basically mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because when i think of run up the hill it does feel very pop to me but i guess they haven't listened to like you know it's not like you know we're the kids in america or something you know mm-hmm. uh yeah but like it's pop for her yeah it is and like I'm going... it's, dark, it's pop it's dark and of course going along with this critical reception i mean that was what they were saying at the time in 1985. And, you know, looking at this in, we're recording this in 2019. So this is 34 years later. And it is in Hounds of Love seems to be, it's a regularly cited as her best album. Or that's one of the yeah. greatest albums of all time. And I've been trying to dissect Why? why it is always yeah why most people go oh yeah hounds of love that's her best album everything else after that she just went right downhill which i totally disagree with i don't yeah i mean i feel like i don't hear that as much i don't i i I always hear yes this is her best album i don't hear this after she went downhill as much but yeah i mean for example last year npr came out with like the 100 greatest albums by women and hounds of love was I don't remember. I know it was in the top 10. It might have even been like number three or in the top five. Then it's interesting. They did a second version where they had people vote. Like, like that was what the critics did. If you'll vote. And actually the Dreaming was like 25. And like Hounds of Love was still really high up. But the Dreaming came in too. And all in some of her, on the kick and shine from other ones as well. But whenever you have critics writing about like best albums. And unfortunately this tends to only, she only, this album tends to only come up when it's best albums by women or something like that. But um, God forbid, you know that's actually a great album. But but yeah, like it's it's always the one that's cited as the best, pretty much. And sometimes people will try to be edgy. Like there was the uh, the Stereo Gum one a few years ago that was Essential World First to be. I felt like to be edgy. Um, and I mean, not that you're allowed to like Essential World the most, but but yeah, the general consensus is what my best friend in the world, Brett Anderson from Suede. Uh, 
that's sarcastic, I hate him, said in the Kate Bush story where he's like, Hounds of Love is the zenith. And I hate him because he, he describes her as prancing around in a leotard only finding her voice prior to this album and that she didn't find her voice until this album, which is, as I have talked ad nauseum about this in my other episodes, but it's not that she didn't find her voice, that she's using her voice in ways that, um, in ways that are maybe not suitable for people who don't want to think much yeah. Um exactly. but, but yeah, the consensus is that this is the zenith, that the ninth wave is like the peak of what is experimental art pop, um, which uh, that's not supposed to be Lady Gaga reference, but anyways. Um, and so like the hound of that ninth wave is, is what is like the epitome of great art, experimental rock, um, pop and rock. And yeah, and like this is like, if, if you get into Kate Bush, this is it. And to be fair, like I kind of see that in the sense that when people ask me when I talk about her and they're like, oh, what's the album to recommend? I, I usually say to go chronologically, but then certain people I'm like, do Hounds of Love first because I feel like, you know, it is kind of an accessible way in. And it kind of was for me in a way because mm-hmm. I first, my first exposure to her was seeing the um, Red Dress Wuthering Heights video. I actually thought, I, I thought it was silly. I did. And then I watched the Running Up That Hill video, really loved that. And so became intrigued and watched the BBC Kate Bush story. And that was the gateway drug and have been an addict ever since. So I think it can provide more of a hook to people. Yeah. Cause you do have on the first side, I mean, when we get to talk about like the structure of this album on the first side, you've got four, you got five songs, four of which were released as very successful singles and that are, you know, generally seen a, they're still very left of center compared to mm-hmm. the stuff at the time, but it's mm-hmm. uh, but they were chart hits and they're more a little more accessible. And then you have the second side that's this experimental where it's got a story or and there's lots of different interpretations as to what's going on because I have my interpretation of what hap- what's going on and mm-hmm. so you it it does have kind of like a little slice of everything that makes her an interesting artist and you also get the really cool mm-hmm. visuals because she is such a vis- she is a very visual artist much like oh i don't know her some of the people who came after her after her like bjork <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah who yeah who who acknowledges me as an influence mm-hmm. so yeah and i can totally of course i could totally hear it at bjork's music but yeah, it's and, and you know i've been thinking about too like you you mentioned earlier that some of probably some of what some of the you know the male music critics might have liked about this album with her is that oh she's not you know they maybe they haven't said this explicitly for some of them but that she's not singing as high that she's singing in a a much more like chesty quote-unquote normal voice she's she's singing Mm -hmm. something a little bit lower it's not as girlish it's not as strange as it was before it's, so it's not be. it's not the type of thing where i remember some i heard someone say it's about joanna knew someone and i don't want to come off as essentialist in terms of gender but someone said like i appreciate that these are sounds that only a woman could physically make which isn't necessarily true i'm sure some men could but that's kind of the first especially the first three kate bush albums i mean johnny rodden's mother described her as sounding like a bag of drowning cat, which is not inaccurate and i think that's a great thing um i love the way that sounds but 
there's this perception, um, because especially with her theatricality, there's a perception kind of amongst like the male established male like music critic establishment that like it's this like she's this like hippy dippy like airy fairy girl even after the dreaming you know just like oh she's just like a weird art student girl who's um singing in this high-pitched voice waving scarves around or as as Brett Anderson said prancing around the leotards even though he did it as well I will never let him I will never let him off the hook um <laughs> and and yeah and I think that I, I actually, so I wrote an article for Stereo Gum about the 40th anniversary of the kick inside mm-hmm. when that happened and someone cut and I said flat out and it says, I don't care if I get paid for this. I said flat out that I, that Hounds of Love is considered, is more well liked because her voice became deep enough for the male music critic establishment to handle it. And someone I remember like said some sort of comment, like this person is seriously saying that people only like Hounds of Love because her voice got deeper. I'm like, well, that's not the only reason people like it but yeah that's that i'm saying it and i don't care what anyone else thinks about that opinion i think it's true if you play i mean just in not even in terms of like in a gendered way but if you play someone something whose who's voice someone's voice who's really polarizing they're not going to like it as much as someone's voice who's more tempered temperate you know and tempered and like easy and for example like Cecily I mean I made Cecily laugh earlier because um I shared that there's there's mean going like for her first <laughs> At least, Cecily and I, basically, I feel like every episode we've done, we've been like, well, we're not really sure. We didn't know what she was saying until she read the lyrics. We read the lyrics, but half the time, you have no, I don't really have any idea what she's saying because the way she sings words, like she'll stretch words out. It's women a pitch in which they just, you don't know what she's saying. And so, basically, the first three albums, four albums, well, four albums, yeah, because I mean, like, who knows what the hell is she saying? Leave it open. Yeah. Um, is is kind of like you don't really know what she's saying. It's that meme from some from RuPaul's Drag Race saying, I don't know what the fuck she's saying, but girl, I'm living. Like that's like <laughs> yes. that's, that's the first four Kate Bush albums. And then Hounds of Love, you actually like, I was listening I've been listening to it constantly because it's the summer and it's my summer album. But yeah, even just listening to it earlier today, I could pretty her diction becomes much clearer. So you can actually understand more of what she's saying, which mm-hmm. also makes it more accessible. But I also like your theory, which I didn't think of so too wrapped up in my being as my dad would say humorless feminist um about it's also maybe more successful because it was more put out there yeah i mean there were four successful singles from this album whereas i don't the the previous her previous albums let's see kick inside had weathering heights the man with the child in his eyes as the chart singles and yes there was moving which was only but that was only put out in japan we're talking like like kind of more general release and then lionheart had hammer horror and wow so that was only two songs and then never forever had breathing army dreamers and babushka and then the dreaming only had it had sat in your lap the title track and there goes a tenor and then Night of the Swallow was only put out in Ireland. So you didn't really have many songs from this album that were or from her previous albums that were there weren't as many songs from the album that were released as singles. And on this album, every song they released as a single was a top 40 hit. And, and in addition to that, I mean, they had the fact that they even bothered releasing them as singles as opposed to being like, well, we're going to do this in Ireland. And I think you made a good point in our notes that I didn't, I don't know why it didn't occur to me, is that like 
there was just more of a marketing push behind this album. So yeah. more people were going to hear it. The more people were going to love it. And, but, then, and I think that's part of what contributes to the consensus of, oh, it's her best album because it's just more familiar for people. Especially, like, if you were growing up in England at the time, she was, like, everywhere in the media. Yeah. And then, like, a year out, less than a year after this was released, then out came the whole story. So you get mm-hmm. the in-between song, um, Experiment 4. <laughs> you get that in there. And that was a top 40 hit, too. I mean, though, that wasn't from the Hounds of Love album. I am going to talk about it in when we get to the uh, the B-sides and collaborations part of the season, because it was put out between the Hounds of Love and um, Central World Era. So yeah. she was just everywhere in a way that she hadn't been in a very long time. And I think that's, yeah, that's part of, like, people just remember, oh, yeah, those songs, because they just heard them all the time, it, outside the U.S., of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, if you I, were... I just kind of love title track and karaoke, but I don't. I actually, I did run out that home karaoke once too, but you can't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do cloud. Unfortunately, I couldn't do cloud busting. No, no, what it is. I'm, like in, so it's yeah, it's still. But in the UK, yeah, and I think what we're trying to get at is that for some reason or other, this album kind of hits a nerve with, with a wider range of people in a deeper way. It seems than yeah out of her albums. Um, for whether or not Cecily and I agree that that should be how it is, that seems to be how it is. Although amongst her fans, amongst like the hardcore fans, I see more kind of the dreaming in that. But but it just depends. It just depends. Like as as we said, if you're reading if you're reading anything about like women artists and their best work, you're gonna see this and yeah. only this. So and better not than nothing. I'm just I'm yeah. glad if it's mentioned at all. Yeah, anything anything at all from Kate, frankly. I mean, because she's yeah, not... Yeah, to see any mention. Very, very much. It's a music business cliche that the second album is the difficult one. The truth is that they all are, especially when the singer writes the songs and produces the record as well. The album we're about to hear was the artist's fifth, and it certainly wasn't easy. The year is 1985, and our classic album is The Hounds of Love. Looking back with me for the next hour is Kate Bush. I think it was probably the most difficult stage I've been at so far. Because the the dreaming, the album before, I'd never produced an album before that one, and because it had a lot of um, unfavourable attention from some people, I think it was felt that me producing Hounds of Love wasn't such a good idea. And for the first time, I felt I was actually meeting resistance artistically. I felt the album had done very well to reach number three, but uh, I felt under a lot of pressure and I wanted to stay as close to my work as possible. And uh, everyone was saying, oh, she's really gone mad now. You know, hey, listen to this. It's a really weird record. But it, it was very important that it happened to me because it made me think, right, do I really want to produce my own stuff? You know, do I really care about being famous? And I was very pleased with myself that, no, it didn't matter as much as making a good album. So we started Hands of Love in our own studio and I started to find out an awful lot of things that I wouldn't have realised otherwise. Um, I relaxed tremendously within my own environment for a start. And also on the dreaming, 
because I was working in such an experimental way, uh, the studio costs were becoming absolutely phenomenal, and I really don't think I could have afforded to have made Hounds of Love in a commercial setup. So um, here I was in a situation of having as much creative control, really, as I could ever ask for. So we want to talk about, like, I also find the story behind this album particularly interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, you were talking about her being very guarded in interviews. And I definitely agree. There is like, she does seem to have like, like put up the wall there. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of that has to do with how Kate uh, recorded this album, that she had a studio built at her house. She was no longer having to use the company time to go to this record recording studio here and that recording studio there and using and paying by the hour. And mm-hmm. instead she could just build, she built her own 48 track studio at her parents' house in their barn. And so she was just around all of her, she was around her family and around the people that she loved and cared about rather than Very morning fog right all there. the, yeah. Like, you know, I'll tell my mother and my brother and my brothers and my father, like there's just this, my whole, loved one. like she was hanging around her family more. And so I think that mm-hmm. her taking time away from being in the spotlight and spending so much more time with her family that she just started to put up, put up more of a wall <laughs> Because she was like, hey, I'm going off and doing my own thing in my own place, and y'all can't do anything about it. (laughs) And this was a, yeah, this is a really happy, she's been very open at that, so this was a really happy time in her life. She really, like, she, this was a time in her life when she felt more at peace, because the dreaming for her was more about, um, let's see, um, yeah, she's for on this album. I wanted to get away from the energy of the last one. At the time, I was there. Time dreaming. I was very unhappy. I felt that mankind was really screwing things up. Having expressed all that, I wanted this album to be different—a positive album, just as personal, but more about the good things. Although I actually think there's a lot of darkness, which will discuss, especially with the first side, which is supposed to be the side about love. I think it's about the dark side of love. Mm-hmm. But she says a lot depends on how you feel at any given time. It all comes out in the music. So that positivity is coming out in the music and which comes through because in Under the Ivy, even with the ninth wave, which is a concept half concept half album not dream drowning, it's really ultimately very optimistic. Graham Thompson writes, so bleak and often nightmarish, the ninth wave is a story about not dying, not going under, as she later said of Peter Gabriel, don't give up, mm-hmm. but I'm instead riding the wave and somehow keeping going. So um so she just, like she says, I took this time to like get back to dance more regularly, to garden, to be with my friends and my family. Yeah, like as I said, it's this morning fog thing, like taking stock of what you have in your life and showing gratitude for that and being kind of immersed in that. Whereas yeah. with the dreaming, she was um, living, like working like 12 hours at a time, living only off Chinese takeout and weed and chocolate. Mm-hmm. Here she was like taking better care of herself. And she has said numerous times that in interviews, uh, I know you have some direct quotes here, although I can't find them, but she said numerous times that, oh yeah, I have here's an example of it. I know there's a big theory that goes around that you must suffer for your art. You know, it's not real art unless you suffer. And I don't believe this because I think in some ways, this is the most complete work that I've done. In some ways it is the best. And I was the happiest that I've been compared to making other albums. Yeah. So yeah, it's actually, yeah. And it's funny because I actually, um, I was, I do therapy at the moment 
as my job at the moment. And um, a, a client was like saying, I don't remember how it came up, but I actually said this. I actually quoted this. I don't remember how, but they were saying how they felt like they could like, oh, but aren't you, aren't people only supposed to like make things, oh, she's a writer, right? So she's a writer. She's like, oh, I felt like people are only supposed to like write things when they're like unhappy and like that's the only way you're supposed to write things. It's interesting you say that because there are definitely a lot of people who <laughs> I like, I like, but there's a lot of people who have said, you know, they feel like their head, you know, when their heads are clearer, they can like make better art. Um, like I mentioned, Virginia Woolf, when she was not, um, when she, when her depression alleviated was when she could write. And I said, oh, and you know, the, there's a musician who I really love who has been quoted many times saying that she felt like she made her best art when she was happy. Yeah. So it's funny because that really still does persist. And it's even in terms of, even in terms of just like, not just making music, but life, people kind of don't feel like they have to focus on unhappiness and have to focus on like, like a lot of friendships are formed around complaining, like people complaining about things together. Like when you're in a mm-hmm. class and everyone doesn't like the teacher, you kind of bond. Yeah. But like that kind of thing. But I think that you could all, things that are formed out of positivity end up being stronger and healthier than something that's formed out of negativity. Like just because I think we think that only suffering is interesting, but there's so much more that's interesting than suffering. It, there's a line in the... Um, in a song by Florence and Machine called the song called No Choir and the line goes hmm. um, it's hard to write about being happy because the older I get I find that happiness is an increasingly uneventful subject mm. which is like how we view, which is how, how very much how we view things and even though but yeah at the same time as I said there's a lot of darkness in here but I think that might also be part of what can people connect to in this album because even though there's a lot of darkness it ultimately is optimistic and there's an air about it where even when you have a song where she's drowning like hello earth there's like this vastness and you feel kind of as if you're merging with the planet and nature that it feels pretty good to listen to it doesn't feel like like with the dreaming you kind of have to be in a very specific mindset to listen to it and sometimes that can be a very dark mindset with this year it's more adaptable like I listen to it on the beach a lot also, for me, music nerding, and most of the songs on Hounds of Love are in major keys. Now, it's not to say mm-hmm. that if you have a song in a major key that it has to sound happy, but mm-hmm. The Dreaming had a lot of minor key songs. I remember you saying that, yeah. Like, All the Love is B-flat minor, uh, which if you, like, B-flat minor, was that? If you've ever heard The Funeral March, that's B-flat minor, like V flat mm-hmm. minor has this very deep darkness to it. Um, get out of right. my house is G sharp minor. If you, you know, would ever want to do an acoustic version of that song, which would be like nearly impossible. <laughs> uh, I don't <laughs> think you could. Um, the dreaming title track, I think is in D minor. It's like a lot of the songs on the dreaming are in, are like dark minor keys. This, this album, I mean, you do start with running up that hill, which is in C minor, which is like, a little bit contemplative but then hounds of love is f major the big sky is f major i think mother stands for comfort is c major and then Mm. uh cloud busting is e major and then interestingly enough and dream of sheep is also i think that's either e major or c sharp minor c sharp minor is the minor equivalent for e major um but there aren't a lot of songs in minor keys a lot. Of, quite I'm a surprised few of them to are hear like that Mother Sanford Comfort is is major because to me, and we'll talk about this more. That's like the darkest 
and most like negative mm-hmm. energy not negative and i don't like it negative in like the vibe of it negative energy so i would think it's oh, minor yeah. but but yeah and, and yeah so what you're speaking to is very true i think that gives it that more like openness that open sound and i think also like the way this album was you're talking about the way this album may be really interesting in terms of her building her own studio also the fact like many of the songs have neither bass nor guitar and on the drums she yes. specifically said no cymbals it's almost like actually that SNL skit with the no cowbells. You hear like you hear that no cymbals. Um, yeah, and in fact, there's some. Yeah. Um, I think it's it was a bootleg DVD I got from Netflix a couple of years ago. I'll have to try and track it down and maybe put in a sample of one of the drummers who worked on Hounds of Love, and he was specifically talking about the drum pattern that he came up with for the title track, and him talking about mm-hmm. there being not he's not allowed to use symbols and how he came up with it and it was it was really interesting maybe even it's on youtube i'm going to try and track it down because it yeah a lot of the songs don't have bass or guitar or symbols on the drum so you don't get that nice splash of sound you know that was something mm-hmm. that peter I and mean, i mentioned before that peter gabriel was experimenting a lot with especially on his melt album that uh, kate sang on for no self-control and games without frontiers and so you get mm-hmm. this kind of darkness with the drums. That was a great fun session. It was really good fun to do. Um, we ended up basically with a setup very similar to this. I think we had four toms, but um, I just set up some toms. There's no snare drum on it. Um, it's basically toms and kick drum. And um, Kate originally, I think, had, I think she had a, a fairly sparse I seem to remember she had a sparse Fairlight track that just kind of went. And um, they set up a couple of microphones uh, fairly far away, and Dell was working on compressing them like mad and really crunching the sound up. And, uh, and then I believe we did several layers of drums but what, what I was doing is um, just like Kate asked um, Stuart on running up that hill to do he, the, 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 um, um, the improvisations at the end I asked if he was just playing the particular fills and then doubling and he said no I was actually doing them with double sticks he was said I was going things like that and, and he said I was you know Kate was getting me to do everything double and um, so what actually happened with, uh, with Hounds of Love was very similar. I went... And then we did a, a double track of that and I tried to play different toms. So in the end, you end up with this blanket, this ridiculous blanket of, of percussion. And I will say, by the way, with the title track for Hounds of Love, I tried a couple of years ago. Maybe I could do it better now because I'm better at music production, but I've actually tried to do a mashup of Florence and the Machine's Howl with Hounds of Love because they're both Ooh. in the same key. And they're both oh. like driven by those drums. You know what I mean? Yes, I was going to say, those are both very extremely, what I love. I, title tracks are my favorite Pixar songs and what I love about it is the, how propulsive it is and the momentum and same with Howl. Ha- I love Howl for similar reasons. And also that, wow, brilliant. Okay. Love I'm going to try but, um, and like do it in my spare time and we'll see what happens. But Interesting. 
but yeah, no, it's, it's, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because you go back to, I, or I go back to my all-time favorite interview with her from 1980 with Profiles and Rocks on YouTube. And they ask, you know, like, what do you want? What's the, she said, like, the only point of being rich for me is so I can put more music into what I do. And this is proof of, like, not about, like, you know, fancy stuff. And this is proof. She put it into making her own studio, which became extremely important moving forward because, like, that's the reason she's able to, you know, take 12 years to make an album because she can do it at her own pace and, like, do a little bit of something, like, whenever she feels like it. Um, so it's really about, like, she, like, the studio stands for comfort, you could say. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, so I, and, like, even in terms of, like, her own comfort, my the most interesting thing, I think, about her home studio is that she had no glass. Normally in the studio, you have a glass window between mm. the live room and the control room. And, but she actually had none and no glass window, so no one could see her sing. And so all communication is via microphone. So it's, it's really interesting to think she was, like, that kind of, I guess, like, self-conscious about being seen singing. Because we talked yes. in other episodes, for example, um, with Hammer in the Hammer Horror episode, we talked about how she um, wanted to actually get frightened enough to sing it, to feel frightened and like experimented with that. And for the end, how um, Lord of the Reedy River, she recorded herself like over a water, over a pool to get her voice to sound a certain way. So with her singing totally blocked off, there's like, she has, she can't really do that, but she's totally in her own world. Um, and Hayden Bendel, who works with her, says mm-hmm. it can, says she takes on these different personae when she's singing. She's an actress as well as a singer. So kind of this contributes to the idea of her as an actress and a shapeshifter. She can do that more easily if she's not being watched, you know, yeah. like she can really like perform and really give her, which she already does when she is being watched. Cause her, even in this era, unfortunately all her performances are lip synced, but like when you watch her perform, for example, the Wogan running up that hill, like she there's this kind of weird vibe where as if she's like a cult leader and she's dead serious and it's, she's completely putting on a show, but, um, but she could do, I guess she might have felt more freedom to, like, for example, who knows what was, it must have been wild to, like, actually see when she does kind of, like, the wild screaming in the big sky background, what that looks yes. like in the studio, which is like, I don't, I don't need you guys to see that. But I think it's really interesting in terms of thinking of her as a private person, but also as a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. And now for a little shout out for a huge Kate Bush fan who wrote into the show a couple of months ago. Paul Tate is a pianist, composer, and arranger who, quote, also just happens to love Kate. And a few months ago, he wrote in to Facebook, and then we later switched to email. And he sent me some of his improvisations over Running Up That Hill and Mother Stands for Comfort. And he was generous enough to send those to me for use in this show. So I wanted to give him a special little shout out because I'm about to read some quotes about Kate Bush's, well, new style of recording music since we're talking about her having a home studio now. And I wanted to give a shout out to him. And if you enjoy what you hear with Paul's improvisations, you can find him on Spotify and Apple Music. His name is Paul Tate, and he has it available in collections called Seasons of Grace. And now on to the quote from the Cape Bush Club newsletter, 1985. Many hours were spent on tiny vocal ideas that perhaps only last half a minute. Many hours went on writing lyrics. One of the most difficult parts in the process for me 
in that it's so time consuming and so frustrating and it just always seems to take far too long for something that seems as though it should come so naturally. One of the difficult things about the lyrics is that when I initially write the song, perhaps half of the lyrics come, come with it, but it's almost more difficult fitting in the other half to make it match than it would be perhaps to start from scratch, where, for instance, you might have just hummed the tune, or where, in some cases, I wrote them as instrumentals and then the tunes were written over the top of this. Many times I ring up Patty and ask him to come over to the studio immediately to bring in that string-driven thing, to hit that note and let it float. One of the most positive things is now having our own recording studio where we can experiment freely, and it's definitely one of the best decisions I've made since I've been recording albums. We put a lot of hard work into this album, so we've been waiting for it to be finished and ready, and I know you've been waiting. I hope that after this time, and after all the snippets of information we've been giving you, you don't find it disappointing, but that you enjoy it, and that you enjoy listening to it in different ways again and again. This album could never have happened without some very special people. Many thanks to Julian Mendelssohn, and especially Hayden Vendel and Brian Tench, who put a lot of hard work into this project. To all the musicians who are a constant inspiration, to Ma who helps with every little thing, to Patty and Jay for all their inspiration and influences, and again to Dell for all those moments we've captured on tape together. And it's also worth noting too that for some of those vocals that, um, especially on the big, I think on the big sky and jig of life that she got herself really drunk in the studio Mm -hmm. and that's how she came up with (laughs) some of those background vocals and I hear that was especially prominent on Jig of Life and you can kind of tell because she's like kind of she's sort of slurring a little bit (laughs) I would have thought more big guy it's funny you say that but I heard it was for both of those that she she felt like she needed to get that she needed to get drunk to get into the this just this letting go kind of persona, you know. Mm-hmm. All as I should mention, kiss all my barriers are going. Let go, let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she could build her own studio and just go at her own pace. And what I also think is really cool about this new, so she's got this new recording studio, forty-eight tracks, all the state-of-the-art equipment, and that. Rather than re-recording any of her demos, that she most of the demos for her songs, especially running up that hill, were actually expanded on in the recording sessions. Mm-hmm. So some people, what they might do is go in, record a quick demo, and then they kind of like leave that aside because oh wait, we're gonna play it faster. We're gonna do x. We're gonna change it in x number of ways. But instead, she took the songs, like the basis for the songs, and started expanding on them instead of just tossing them away, which I think is a, I mean, she can do that with her. She's got her own studio and she's not on company Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, there were uh quite a few uh quite a few samples i mean it's not like every song had a sample or something but um 
they, in the trees it's coming is from Night of the Demon. And then, which is so random. Oh my gosh. I've yeah. seen that movie. Like I saw it years ago on a fir- on my first date with this guy I briefly dated who looked like young Daniel J. Lewis and was Irish, but Ooh. smelled really bad. So I had to dump him for that. And uh, <laughs> like it was unbearable. I could like literally couldn't stand near him. But yeah, so that, so I have an interesting, so I have a connection to Night of the Demon. And I wonder like, it's like, I wonder why when she was coming up with this, it makes, it makes a lot of sense for the song, but it's in the trees is coming. But I wonder what about when she was thinking of, when she was writing the song, thinking of the theme of love as something that pursues you almost against your will and in a fearful way, she's like, oh, that line from Night of the Demon, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, yeah, it's not a super, in my opinion, not a super memorable movie, but yeah. Yeah, that's what I've heard. In fact, by the time this comes out, though, I probably will have watched the movie because I want to watch it for the for the title track episode just to mm-hmm. kind of see what this yeah, it's is. Literally not related at all, but um, but yeah, it's like because she's always pulling because the way that she's traditionally pulled more from literature and film is like for doing something like the Infant Kiss or the Wedding List, where it's based on a movie. Mm-hmm. This is like as opposed to sampling, so this is an interesting turn. And there's of course the um, Nosferatu. From from Werner Ver- yep. Herzog, Nosferatu in Hello Earth. Um, it's a the I can never pronounce it, Georgian chanting, but it but it's brought like so it's it's a it is a traditional chant, but it is from the like how she found it is from the 1979 wonderful. Um, well, there's two versions. There's an English language version. There's a German language. Watch the German language one, much better. Um, Nosferatu the vampire. So it's interesting that she's now like pulling instead of pulling ideas from sources she's pulling sounds from sources yeah yeah it's a in that song it's a sin sin scaro i think is how you pronounce it and it's a georgian folk song from the kakhetian region its title is the name of a village Mm -hmm. in the cartil cartley region which translates as at the spring water and it's usually performed by a male vocalist and choir and it's mm-hmm. in. I mean, the Wikipedia article they mention it being used in Nosferatu and Hello Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lots of just Two different little, very much. lots of little things that she's pulled in to to make this very intriguing album. And I mean, speaking of like the intriguing album, has a really neat structure to it. <laughs> yeah, unlike some, it's not like anything she's done before. She has. Mm-hmm. I mean. For like when we talk about Never Forever, I kind of think of Never Forever in a similar structure where the first half is these songs and I call in the Never Forever intro episode and in the episodes about the songs from that half, I refer to it as like the Diva trilogy mm-hmm. where you have Violin and the Wedding List and the Infant Kiss where it also like falls to the walls or just, you know, ovaries to the walls, whatever. Um, so where those are just like, I feel like Never Side 2 and Never, and the Side 2 and the Dreaming as well like, are about like going as wild as possible. Um, but this is actually connected by a narrative. And it's a quite a, mm-hmm. it's a thin narrative, but it's still a narrative. And it's interesting in terms of being a thin narrative because she does the same thing years later with Ariel. Um, both so like the story of the night. So ha, ha, side one is you know Hounds of Love, and side two is it wasn't really officially called this. I don't really know how it ended up. But, well, it's called, it's called because the poem on the back we'll talk about. But side two is the ninth wave. And she described it as being about a person who is alone in the water for the night, about their past, present, and future, coming to keep them awake, to stop them drowning, 
to stop them going to sleep until the morning comes. And then kind of what's going inside that person's mind psychologically as they're drifting in and out of consciousness. So it's not like this complex story of the hero's journey, but it's all about like these things that are entering in and out of the mind. And it's interesting because in Ariel, the second half is um, an endless sky of honey, which is literally just about the passing of a day based mm-hmm. on nature and like sensations. So even though these are concept albums, they're really just concepts of that they're, she's kind of challenged in a way like challenging the notion of a concept album that a concept album has to be epic. It can be like intimate, especially mm-hmm. endless sky of honey. But even here, like it's, this is very much about someone's psychological state as opposed to like, here's the concept album about like, you know, world peace or something. Yeah. Like, concept <laughs> about. Or like, even like I'm thinking of like that over the second compared to her a lot. Um, Bat for Lashes, her second album is supposed to be a concept album about like kind of two sides of herself. There's her and then the, her like alter ego Pearl who are kind of like battling it out. Mm-hmm. So this is just about like so what's going on within one person's head, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can't it's be left. the wall. I can't be left to my imagination. Yeah, mm-hmm. she says in, in, in Dream of Sheep. And see, yeah, in the first side is it's supposed to be all these like stories, I guess, songs about love, but it's not, it's not puppy love. It's like trying to understand your partner and where they're coming from, or it's feeling afraid of love coming to get you and tearing you up or with big Mm -hmm. sky. I don't think the big sky feels like almost like a love of childhood and this love of like seeing like looking up at clouds and seeing, oh, hey, that cloud looks like Ireland. Like you still got this mm-hmm. big imagination and everything. And then uh, mother stands for comfort. You get, oh, what if what if uh, a, a mother's son is this terrible serial killer? And how are you going to how are how and we're supposed to sympathize with a terrible person and then you get to cloud busting and it's a love of a little boy for his father. Yeah. Like all of it. She described that side one is because I think if you don't think about it, you're just like side one has these scattered songs put together and side two is a concept piece, but she doesn't see it that way. She says that side one is linked by love. And so they're all about love and relationships, but in totally unexpected ways. So mm-hmm. running up that hill is about the kind of, failure of communication in love and relationships and how love is strong enough to make you want to swap places, make a deal with God and swap places with your partner to understand them, um, which is not typical at all. It's not no. specific, like most of the ways people express love is not by, it's expressing the frustrations that come with love. The Hounds of Love, the title track is about love as a source of fear. It's about um, the fear of being trapped by love, ripped to shreds by passion. You know, so it's not, it's, it's a source of terror that she eventually gives into and can find joy in, but especially the way that it's constructed uh, with the strings, it's extremely tense. And also the Mm -hmm. music video, she said explicitly was inspired by Hitchcock, which is not like, you know, super rosy. So, um, and they're, you know, they're running from things, but eventually there is joyous at the end. They throw, but, and then after that big sky, I see about this awe and love, this awe at nature and the world, like especially when she says, come and join. Like mm-hmm. there's really like this, I said a childlike passion, which is such a, you don't, there's not that many songs that are a love letter to nature and the world. 
and yeah. the universe, you know, like, and so mother stands for comfort is about, un, it's about toxic love. It's about enabling love. It's about the ability of love to blind us to someone's fault. Mm-hmm. And cloud busting is about paternal love, which you don't really hear a lot of songs that are about like showing that are about a parent child relationship. Besides Eminem songs about his mother, which is not exactly (laughs) loving. But, but, yeah, I think... Or you get stuff like, um, I don't know, I I sometimes think of some of these cheap, more, I'm going to say it, cheesy country songs about, oh, yeah, she's always going to be daddy's little girl or something. Like, I mean, you get that kind of stuff, but... I mean, people, yeah, people latch on to the, her using the word daddy thing because of, like, Lon Del Rey and it being sexualized. But, um, but you know, it's not meant that way, even though even I'll joke about it sometimes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really just, be- I mean, Cloud Busting is my fifth favorite. It's your favorite key question of all time. Yes, and it's my it fifth favorite time of horror. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll talk about it more when we go through the songs. But it's yes. just this, like, beautiful ode to to the power of of childhood and love. Again, like, big side childhood and love and how love can create like the safety in childhood which then gets unfortunately the bubble gets burst but um but it's really rare to hear that and mm -hmm. yeah and then yeah so they're love songs but not not anything you would not about romantic relationships in any sort of conventional way and I really appreciate that and I almost see the second side and I know the second side you would think that it wouldn't quite fit with the the previous five songs you might I, I read a review of this album that said well this this feels like it's kind of two EPs that have been smushed together and somehow they work and yet mm-hmm. I think in the end that the second side is about is does is all about love but like a love of life mm-hmm, me too and realizing exactly. oh my god I've got this wonderful thing in me. I've got, I'm going to tell my brothers. I'm going to tell my mother. I'm going to tell my father how much I love him. I'm going to be, I'm going to feel grateful that I'm here. And right. that's ultimate. That's the ultimate ending. I think for that sec for that very nightmarish second side that I know we've touched, we've talked about, like she said in interviews that it's, it's a woman like going slipping in and out of consciousness. And yeah, I think of it as, this this woman who's just trying to keep herself awake and that some of these different songs are her all these different nightmares that she's having like oh dreaming that she's been that she fell in the water because she was skating on ice and she fell through and then mm-hmm. going back to the 1600s and witch dunk witch ducking which mm-hmm. oh I have to kind of make a shout out here for Virginia Beach we have Witch Duck Road which was named after you know a, a lady who they suspected of being a witch and they tried to dunk her oh, and all wow. that kind of stuff. Yep, a little shout out for Virginia Beach there. And then you get to like Hello Earth, it makes it feel like she's like looking at the Earth. She's dreaming that she's looking at the Earth from space and then even into America. First only mm-hmm. time people ever. Called I know, me. right? Oh, and of course, Thanks I couldn't forget Jig of Life. And for... my fourth favorite song of hers ever, so, okay, <laughs> happy for that. And of course, how can I forget Jig of Life? I mean, duh. That in, in that one, I feel like it's her dreaming that she's engaging in this almost primal sort of dance, like something that you might yeah. see from, like, way long ago in ancient, ancient England. Which I feel like the poem 
kind of tapped into. It makes you mm-hmm. feel like I just saw Midsummer. It feels like like the poems are like recited as like as everyone's like dancing around the maypole type thing, yeah. and like you know maybe doing some human sacrifice. But um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Of, yeah, little bit. I think yeah, well, it, it kind of has that vibe. Um, the poem part to me at least does. But yeah, I think that yeah, and like for example, with Jig of Life, that's I don't even know if, if it's. That's the thing with this. It's up for debate of how much of it is actually her dreaming versus what's actually, mm-hmm. like, supposed to be happening. Because, like, Jig of Life is supposed to be, like, her future self talking to her current self. Like, the current, your future self saying to the, the self that's drowning, stay alive because I could I, come on and let me live, girl. Let me, your older self, live and exist. Um you're just a girl and you have so much, all the things she's naming, all the things that are going to happen to her that she wants to let happen. If you die, this can't happen. So again, Peter Gabriel, don't give up type thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah. And so it's interesting. So yeah. So it's, it's so yeah. So the way it's described under the Ivy is that the girl in the water, I don't know why grandpa doesn't say woman, but Kate sometimes girl too, in the water is visited in real time by events around her but also by memories, future projections, hallucinations, and possible past lives. So yeah, even if facing the witch, you know, you can say, oh, she's having a nightmare, she's a witch. It also can be interpreted that this person in a past life was a witch and is having like a recall, like that's being mm. recalled. Um, or was an accused witch, I should say. But some, one thing I've always really uh, found fascinating about this is that in 1978, I remember seeing like an actual clip. There's been I saw like on the internet years ago, like an actual clip of it from the Teen Magazine. It's in, but in this Teen Magazine, they asked her like, "What's your favorite? What's the strangest dream you ever had?" There's this picture of her. Their arm is what like her arms over. It's this really pretty like goth type picture, and she says, "I'm." Her, they asked her what her strangest dream was. She says, "I'm sitting on this raft in the middle of a gigantic ocean. There's no land in sight, just limitless water. Yet I have no fear and no desire to be rescued." Just a feeling of complete peace. So, like, she predicted her own future. She's mm-hmm. like, she was like almost planning this in 1978. It's really uncanny to read. Um, and then, especially when you see the visual for the um, before the dawn and of Bima Sheep, um, where she's yeah. But it's funny because in the dream, she's at complete peace and no desire to be rescued. And this is turmoil. This mm-hmm. is needing to rescue. Like, if you fall into peace, you're going to die. That's complacency. Yeah, you're gonna roll over but, and just drown. Right, but what Graham? Yeah, so what Graham Thompson says in Under the Ivy is that he describes the ninth wave as being a distillation of 25 years worth of Bush's fascinations, nightmares, and recurring obsessions: the sea, very true, witchcraft, death, the supernatural, the dangerous power of the senses, feelings of exclusion, the thin line between reality and fantasy. If indeed there is any line at all. For don't we all exist most completely and vividly within our own minds? So, yeah. So he says that I, you've mentioned this line before. I can't be left to my imagination is the key line. For above all, the ninth wave is a panicky swim through the murky waters of the human psyche. Bush creates a stark dramatic scenario being lost at sea to suggest that what lies within our, our heads and hearts is more terrifying than anything the world can throw our way. And yet therein also lies our most precious and creative resources. And yeah, I, I think that's a great analysis. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's funny because he says panicky and he about psychological warfare. When I hear those words, welcome to my mind, the dream is. Yeah. Um, I just, so I, I really like this description, but I also wonder if it kind of, to me, the dreaming is the album that's about 
like torment. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is Absolutely. about. Yeah. So it's interesting though, because so I'm because of like training as a therapist, I always think about internal versus our source is the source of distress coming from internally or externally, right? And I feel like he does have a point in the sense that the dreaming of Kate Bush herself says that the ways in which human people are fucking things up. So in the dreaming, you have the things that the narrator of the dreaming are kind of battling with are external, which is war in pull out the pin, such as like, but, and whereas here, such as the intruder and get out of my house. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of really in, dreaming is very much about internal struggle. So for example, you have all the love, which is about shutting yourself in and out. And then leave it open is also about the decision to shut yourself in and out, just the opposite decision. And um, suspension and gaffa is about um, the inability but desire to connect to a higher power, sat in your lap, about the search for knowledge. So it's interesting because I think those are intensely psychological songs and why for me personally, when I'm kind of in a more stressed out place, I I prefer to listen to Towns of Love because I feel less like, I feel a little bit more removed from my own turmoil, um, whereas the dreaming can mirror it too much. Um, but it's interesting because he does have a point that since this out, since the ninth wave is specifically set within the consciousness of a human being, it is inherently about what happens internally. Mm-hmm. Um, because even with these, like all the forces, all the forces that are that the person's struggling with, whether or not to live or die. Um, the feeling in watching you without me of feeling estranged and displaced from family, um, the feeling of envy of sheep of being left to your imagination of um, of an um, sorry in, in, in under ice of feeling kind of there's a disassociation between what is the self like not realize, recognizing someone else as me. There's so it all is extremely internal. Um, yeah. Even though I think the dreaming the dreaming is as well, but it's also coming from more. It's like the person the different narrators and this is one narrator the different narrators in the dreaming is tormented more by internal distress kind of caused by the state of the world whereas this one narrator is is facing all conflicts because of internal distress caused from being in and out of consciousness yeah absolutely but I think of it, but I, it's interesting because I don't think of this as a panicky album. I mean, like Waking the Witch mm. is super hectic and Jig of Life is also like a, like, no, I don't, that's not clever, but like bombastic, but yeah, it doesn't feel panicky. And Under Ice, yeah, I can see Under Ice is panicky, but like, yeah, it doesn't feel panicky. I get, we'll talk about this when we talk about personal thoughts, but both of us have this feeling of like this connection to nature and yeah. kind of like open vastness when it comes to this album, as opposed to like with the dreaming, the more like claustrophobic feel. Well, kind of speaking of personal thoughts, I mean, God, this album, the first time I really heard this album in full um, was when I got it for dirt cheap at a pawn shop in Hawaii when I was on vacation with my parents in like 2005. It was right before, right as I was becoming a fan. And I'd heard a couple of songs from Hounds of Love from uh, Flashback Alternatives. I talk about Flashback Alternatives a little bit on the show because they really exposed me to the more underground 80s music other than the stuff that just gets like the same 15 songs that get played for flashback mm-hmm. nights. And so I heard stuff like running is up that hill. It is still around, yes. Um, I last checked uh, flashbackalternatives.com. You go there and they've, they've 
They have all sorts of 80s stuff that you've never even heard of. And they have a lot of Kate Bush. And I used to hear a lot of Kate Bush on there. And I heard Running Up That Hill. I would hear Cloud Busting. I remember hearing Waking the Witch once, which kind of (laughs) freaked me out a little bit. Like, because out of the context of the album, it was like, okay, what in the hell is this? But I hadn't heard the album as a whole until I got that... um, until I got that used copy. And I think it was an older copy because the CD, when I look at the side, it's thicker than a lot of modern CDs. And, but it was still, it was still playable. The liner notes were definitely a little bit worn, but the CD could play. And I put it on in the car to play for my parents. And needless to say, they did not ask me to play it again. Because they were kind of like, I think it was by the time I got to the big sky and they were just like, what is this? Like, That's interesting that the first two songs would turn them off that much when it's the first two are kind of the most accessible. I know, right? But but at any rate, I remember listening to that album a lot while I was in Hawaii. And so when I think of Hounds of Love, I think back to driving around Hawaii with my parents and seeing nothing but green, seeing... Big, big blue skies, lots of big puffy clouds. Quite a few of them were gray because this is Hawaii. And so it rains like practically like every 15 minutes because it's Hawaii. And I think of like being young and just being out in nature and and seeing just big rolling hills and mountains and even driving all the way up to Haleakala, which is all all like. You look like it looks like the surface of Mars. And so I when I hear this album, I think of summer and I think of that time in Hawaii. And I will say for a while, Hounds of Love was my favorite Kate Bush album. Quite a bit of it was because of those memories of Hawaii, because it was one of the last vacations we took as a as a family before we all kind of went our separate ways. But also it it felt to me like an amalgamation of all that Kate had been writing about before. And all of her influences, like coming out on this album, you get the Irish, you get the folk, you get Mm -hmm. the 80s-ness, you get everything. Like that was a part of her sound just coming out in this. And also, like, I can't be left to my imagination, her her theme, constant themes of like, like psychology and, and what's going on in your head, looking at love from more than just like puppy dog, puppy love angles. And just... And then the songs were were really captivating for me. But over time, though, it has fallen to number two for me. It is still a it is still like one part of the golden four of Kate Bush albums for me. But the dreaming, I'm sorry. Like, I know many people think of this as her best album, but I got to say for the batshit craziness of the dreaming. I got to go with the dreaming for my favorite album because there is experimentation on this album. Yeah, there is still experimentation on this album, but it is in it feels more controlled than it did yeah. on the dreaming. But I like the which is what people prefer about it. Mm-hmm. They like that it's more controlled. But I I actually would argue with that. I don't think I mean, based on what I've read about the making of both albums, it seems like there's more control. But people kind of even at the end of the chapter of the dreaming about and under the eye game promises like next would be controlled chaos or thing or maybe that's when he's talking to dreaming either way i don't feel like the dreaming is not controlled i feel like it's everything in it is so deliberate so um i feel like this is almost a little more stripped 
that like it's less cluttered but the clutter isn't like someone hoarding and just hoarding and hoarding it's very very planned mm-hmm. so I, I don't really like not that you're perpetuating it but I think there is this thing that this narrative that goes around of the dreaming is like is just chaos just noise but it's really not to me I think waking the witch is much more of quote-unquote just noise and anything on the dreaming but yeah yeah and I should say like it is when I say it's batshit crazy that it it is like like you were saying deliberate like every like every little layer in the dreaming is there for a reason it's just like Mm -hmm. I think I feel like there's just more layers of sound within the dreaming than there are exactly pounds of love and which is what I like prefer it's it's more more to dig into mm. but I mean those are my part and and also for a while running up that hill was my absolute favorite Kate Bush song but that is no longer the case I have another one that's taken over in its place and yeah it it used to be my favorite 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 Kate it was the one that I would go to the most but it was my gateway album to the rest of her music. And right. And that's why I think it's a good one to recommend to people as a gateway. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was for somebody like me who wasn't really, didn't really listen to a lot of really experimental music growing up. And so I wasn't used to unconventional music. This was, it, it was still a little bit for me to swallow in some ways, but it did help me to like, ease my way into the rest of her stuff yeah and i think that has it served that purpose for many and that's why it's a good i said like a gateway so when this was recorded last saturday i had not found the following quote and i really wish i had found it beforehand but oh well better late than never so here we go this is a quote from rock over london An interview aired on radio at the end of December 1985. And this is about why the second side of Hounds of Love is called the Ninth Wave. The interviewer says, You call the second side the Ninth Wave, and you quote Tennyson. Why? Kate. Well, rather than it being inspired by Tennyson, as a lot of people have presumed, it was completely the other way around, in that I was looking for a title for the piece, and there was no line from the songs that was no title that was really right for the whole side. So I started looking through books for quotes, etc., and just found this quote from The Ninth Wave by about the ninth wave that seems so parallel. The idea of waves moving in cycles of nine so that it all builds up to the ninth and then begins again. So it was used as the title. Yeah, I well, before I get into personal thoughts, I want to talk in regards to the ninth. I think something interesting to talk about in regards to the ninth wave is what? Why is it the ninth wave? What is the ninth oh, wave? Yes. Why nine? Um, because it is. It's not just. It's something that's very important. Because so, if you on both the CD and the album, I I don't have a record player, but I have the album, which is it's purple. It's beautiful. It's a gatefold, so it really emphasizes that sense of it being a double album, even though it's not, because the gatefold you open it and there's like two sides. Um, it's beautifully, it's a beautiful, really beautifully crafted. On the back of it, there's a photograph of her as a Ophelia drowning figure. And then underneath is a excerpt from the poem, The Coming of Arthur by Tennyson, which, and the excerpt says, wave after wave, each mightier than the last, 
till last a ninth one gathering half the deep and full of voices slowly rose and plunged roaring and all the wave was in a flame Mm. so something that I think about when I think about this is why this poem because I looked up the poem the coming of Arthur and it's really long like I have mm-hmm. to browse it multi- I have to do control F to even find this part <laughs> yes, it's very long <laughs> it's basically just a typical King Arthur story and I don't even really know how this part is relevant to the plot of the story or of King Arthur so I don't because she talks a lot of the inspiration behind her work but I haven't really ever seen anything where she talks about why she chose to use mm-hmm. an excerpt from this poem out of like, it's not like, for example, with cloud busting, how she'll, she tells, says the story. I found, I read this book six years ago. I found it randomly and I was inspired. There's no clue, like, oh, I was reading The Coming of King Arthur and The Coming of Arthur and really liked these lines, you know? So I wonder, so, yeah, and it's all, it's quite, and she also, I mean, like, a lot of her, ref, even though she gets pegged as this kind of, like, 19th century pre-Raphaelite figure, she's, actually, most of her references are not, are much more contemporary. Yeah. Um, so for her to kind of go back to romantic po- literature, romantic poetry is actually, it kind of goes with the stereotype of her, but not really the reality. Mm-hmm. So I really love this excerpt. Um, I, wave after wave, each mightier than the last, to me has been a very apt description of my life. Um, mm. And like, as everything keeps on coming and just when you, in, as once she said, just, um, when I think it's getting better, somehow it gets much worse. And I actually, I don't have any tattoos and I have no desire, but if I had one, I'd have a key on my, knees my neck because that's related to dreaming. If you listen to the Genie episode, you'll find out more about that. <laughs> and, um, and so go listen. And then I would, and again, this is if I could have anything because I would never do this because it hurts so much. I would have my rib cage in the exact, exact font that it's printed on the back of the Hounds of Love album wave after wave each mitre in the last. I think that's like a really interesting way to approach life, especially if in the way Graham Thompson describes in Under the Ivy, the lesson is to ride the wave and not, mm-hmm. A, not be drowned by it and not run away from it and to ride it. And now it's funny because right now I'm in Fire Island where I go every summer and I'm terrified. I'm terrified of the ocean. I don't swim. Um, I, so it's funny because I act, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't ride the waves. I run the hell, I don't go, I'm notorious, like, ever since I was little, when I was in camp here, I was notorious as not swimming, and actually once the town librarian threw me in the water to kind of taunt me for not swimming, so that's a long story, kind of like being dumped like Waking the Witch. But, um, but so it's interesting because it's kind of about like, yes, life is overwhelming, yes, it's scary, but you just, you learn to ride it somehow. And but then it's interesting to last a ninth one gathering half the deep and full of voices slowly rose and plunged, which is what happens in the ninth wave and piece of music because yes, it's full of voices. Waking the witch is full of all these voices from past lives and all the people telling her to wake up. Um, Under ice has the deep voice Kate and regular voice Kate. Um, Jig of life is the voice from the future coming to visit the present. Um, in um, in Hello Earth, you have the voices of the two of all. Again, I wonder. We, I guess, we'll figure that more in the. I'll be on the Hello Earth episode, but the two American Jews on the walkie-talkies talking. So it is full of voices, and so like just like this wave is full of voices that slowly rise and plunge. But interestingly, until 
in the poem, in the excerpt, it roars and the wave is in a flame, which kind of indicates this sort of, this isn't what happened. It's almost apocalyptic. You know, it sounds like utter destruction and something terrifying, but in the ninth wave of the music, it ends in the wave crashes and you're calm and, and it's been written and there's calm. Yeah. So I wonder in a way almost why she didn't end it at like, and full of voices slowly rose and plunged and included that last line, that roaring and all the wave was in the flame, because that really is scary, um, mm-hmm. which, which is meant to be, but it's not the note that it ends on. So I just, it's interesting because she hasn't talked about it. You're right. She has never talked about, and, and yeah, this was on all the little bits of paper that fell from the ceiling for the Before the Dawn yep. show. I'm actually looking here. Which we both had. We were there. <laughs> I wish. I was there. In, you know what? Yeah. I was there in spirit. I wanted to be. <gasps> yeah. I mean, I have bootleg, so, you know. Yeah. Of video. So, yeah. If you have seen pictures, I'm actually looking here. This is at somebody's live journal that I guess they went to the show. And so this is like a picture of it. Like, oh, hey, I'm taking a picture of this. Little yeah. little piece of paper yeah, posted have, to the internet. Yeah, I have I have videos of all. I've someone took uh, some videos of like I have the entire of all the night waves. So I've seen kind of how it, it's like so low quality. Still, where's DVD? He hot bitch. But anyways, um, <laughs> but yeah. So so it, so the thing is clearly this poem remains extremely important to her because. But she but it's so important and yet she's never talked about like why the coming of Arthur mm-hmm. because as I said. It's this long poem. Like, did she find it? Was it assigned for school when she was young? Because it's the type of thing that would have been assigned for school when you're a Catholic schoolgirl in England in the 70s. And, you know, like, it's, I just, it's a very, like, the, the quote itself fits perfectly, but the actual poem of The Coming of Arthur doesn't fit at all. So mm-hmm. if someone does think it fits, please write in and tell us why you think it fits. I'd, I'd be curious to know. But, yeah. Yeah, because I but almost... that's where the title Nice Life comes from. Yeah, and, and, you know, looking at this poem, looking at just this this verse, I agree with you that it's, it's an apt... It, it works for the second side of the album, but also I look at this too and see that this could be almost a metaphor for Kate's entire career every time she puts out an album. Maybe that's kind of like going way off the deep end. huh? No pun intended, actually, mm. seriously there. But like wave after wave, each mightier than the last. Like every time she's putting out something new and then now takes she's... Takes longer and longer. Ta- yeah, it takes longer and longer. And then, you know, finally, and then like uh, finally along comes, uh, comes so- uh, something for for the public and, you know, full of voices. I mean, she's always doing tons of background vocals that are always doing yeah. their own thing. Except on Hounslow's title track, which notably has no background vocals because her leading vocal is that strong. I think that's incredible. One oh, my God. I've listened great. to that song so many times. I've never even noticed that. Really? Holy oh, crap. yeah, there's no backing. For... Yeah, and that's, to me, a huge part of what makes the song so incredible is that it's completely... The, the sheer force of it and the like as it's so propulsive it's just one voice yeah del palmer actually points that out in the community taking english story that's otherwise i'm gonna think oh so. <laughs> yeah i do wish that she had talked about where this what this means to her other than oh it just all sounds cool <laughs> which it right. very well might just come down to 
I don't know. It sounded cool, and it right. made me think of this thing. Right, but so. like in terms, right, but in terms of it sounding cool, like where do you find it to sound cool? Because mm. that the poem is long. That but is. yeah, so that was a side that was sidetrack. But generally, like in terms of what Cecily asked, like my personal thoughts. Yeah, I love this album. Um, it let me ah go through my notes. Um, it always, as I said earlier, it's like my summer album. It makes me feel very connected to nature um and so like for example so like she has a quote where she says i sit at my from this era i sit at my piano and watch skies moving and trees blowing and that's far more exciting than buildings and roads and millions of people yeah i'm i'm a new york city native born and raised and i it's the summer right now ever since i was four years old i go away every summer every weekend and it's really important to me to like I'm never ever happier than I am when I'm lying on the beach completely zonked out um and so in this album nature is both exciting and a source of joy you know the come and join in the big sky and it's also a sense of anxiety which is like the sea almost killing the protagonist of the ninth wave so um in Hounds of Love Graham Thompson says it's an album positively propelled by nature, soaked to, to its bones, soaked, no pun intended, to its bones with a tremendous stimulus from the outside. The elemental rush isn't present only in its words, with their countless references to big skies, rain, clouds, etc., but also in the sound. So what he describes as elemental vigor is what I really like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, um, I'll talk more about this in Hello Earth, but like, I just, it's that song more than that album or in all of them. I just feel like kind of like I, this is the album where I kind of, I mean, I listen to every, I listen to the most unexpected things on the beach. Like, <laughs> and I read like very like unbeachy beach books. Like I remember reading Jude the Obscure on the beach and like, you know, children are killing other children in that book. And like, this is beachy for me, but that happens your goth. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, but like, I just, I often listen to this on the beach and like, I make sure that like when I'm walking, on the water, like I'll take a little walk. I'm like, I have Hello Earth on. I'm connected to the elements. I'm looking at the sky. It's just, it's all coming together. Um, it's this really beautiful feeling. I have this ritual where every time I take the, to go to where I go, Far Island, you have to take a train and take a ferry to get there. So a train from the, a ferry from the train. I have this ritual I listen to Hello Earth, the Yoga by Bjork, and How Big, but How Blue, How Beautiful by um my phone's machine because all those songs kind of to me relate to something elemental and so I just really like that feeling of like even when I'm walking in New York I live in Brooklyn I'm lucky to live it for the moment at least both me at least gets renewed in an area where there's a lot of trees and so I like walking around and even the songs you know not all songs are nature like you know um Mother's Chance for Comfort sure as hell isn't and or like Under Ice makes up ice but um but something about it feels there's this like openness and airiness to it yes. that kind of makes your mind feel a little more open that I really appreciate. And I have a lot of, like you, I have some really positive memories connected to it. Um, I, me, I have this really wonderful memory of me and my first love in a, in the back of a taxi in London after we were coming home to my club uh extremely inebriated and just singing we literally she like we put on one of our phones this album side one sang the entire album or sang the entire side one tax driver goes i love kate bush <laughs> so like that's one of my my fav- my best memories ever so i'll always kind of think of that with hounds of love but um but yeah hounds of love for me is kind of this really beautiful um you know i again i will 
till the day I die argue that not one, like that all of the ninth wave combined is not as experimental or interesting as like any selected two minutes of anything on the dreaming. But at the same time, I, you know, it, it just, it, it has a nice calming effect. I really like, and we'll talk about, I'll talk about this more when I kind of go briefly, I'll go very briefly to save time through the song. But I like yeah. that it ends on this kind of note of, um of, you know, of like gratitude. And yeah, it's this nice, it's as someone with anxiety, it's kind of a album that's good for that in terms of like making you feel a little less anxious because like, and kind of bringing a lot of things together. Um, also, it's funny because I often know if I listen to it when on the beach or like if I'm trying to do it in a way where to get that openness that, and airiness I talked about, I'll, even though I love running up that hill, I'll skip it because running up that hill, it feels, like I said, like kind of more of its time, more like 1980s, whereas I feel like the other song, and same with Big Sky, but I feel like the other songs have more, of, and it's about like this very interpersonal relationship dynamic. And it kind of has that building storminess to like after there's one more after one of the less exchange experience now it gets really builds. Mm-hmm. But besides that, I find it very. Um, I find it like sometimes I have to skip it in order for the album to feel less of that impact that I get from the dreaming, where it's like you know, you're like some, it's something closing it on you almost. But yeah. yeah, I think it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, I, I'm unfortunately because I've just had to deal with so many people only praising this album and insulting other two in a ways that insult the other ones. I've had to kind of like play like non hounds of like look at other things besides hounds of love police, but I, I still love it. I listen to it constantly, constantly. Um, it's as I said, it's more like, like it's more kind of adaptable, but um yeah, we can we can briefly go through kind of the songs and how we feel about the songs because um, to kind of go through like the, you know, like the story and narrative of this album. But yeah, I'll be brief because I know you have a thing to do. <laughs> yep. So I got to get going pretty soon here. But so I've ranked all this. I've ranked all her songs like album to album, like what are my favorites and everything. And Okay, spoiler alert, Cloud Busting is not only my favorite song on this album, but it's my favorite overall of Kate Bush for mm-hmm. reasons I'll get into for the Cloud Busting episode. Although between you and I, you know my reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Number two for me. daddy. <laughs> well, for, and the number two is In Dream of Sheep. That's my second favorite on the album. It's just such a calming and I, I realized, like, within the context of the mini musical, if you will, that she did on the second side, but for it's got a lot of it, it reminds me of being back in college and walking between classes at night, and it was just so soothing. And I was just such a like depressed little college kid, and just something about it would just soothe me. And so that's my that's my second favorite mm-hmm. on Hansel. It's almost all lullaby ish, it is, yeah. In, uh, number three, my third favorite from Hounds of Love is the title track. I love how frenetic it is. And mm-hmm. I can, I can relate to that feeling of, oh, God, I'm getting into this relationship. What am I getting into? Am I going to get really torn up by it? I don't know. Ah. Yeah, same. Um, number four is Running Up That Hill. It used to be my overall favorite, but, you know, the other stuff has supplanted it. Um, Watching You Without Me. I just, for some reason, like, I've always really connected with that song and just how mysterious and looping and hypnotic it is 
Um, my sixth favorite is number six is the big sky. I just love how joyful it is. It took me a long time mm. to get into it because I couldn't get past like the last two minutes where she's just like ad libbing and like really being like, okay, I don't know what's going on with you, girl. Um, the best part. And, and I realized that now that's like, yeah, it's just like you were completely losing control. And it's just, it's so joyful. You just have to just jump into the big sky with her. Um, number I seven. Love that. Yeah. Number seven is Jig of Life. Uh, it's a tie between Jig of Life and Hello Earth, honestly. For for seven and eight there. Um, nine is the morning fog. I like the morning fog. It's sweet. It's cute. It, it, it's sweet and everything. Not, I don't have a lot of personal connection to it. And 10, 11, and 12 are Under Ice, Waking the Witch, and Mother Stands for Comfort. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So, like, in terms of how, something else I want to say is, um, yeah, like, as I, was, I said earlier, I kind of feel a sense of loss with this album in terms of I feel like the high-pitched vocals and theatricality that I really love about her work is now gone, and that makes me feel kind of – but the vocals are outstanding, and the most outstanding oh, yeah. vocal to me is the climax, the climax of how – the climax of of the All You Sailors, all – you know, that mm-hmm. – that whoa, whoa. Um, but it's just – in terms of, like, what's interesting is that there is a theatricality. To me, Andrew Machief and Hello Earth in particular feel like Broadway ballads. Very yeah, much do. like Broadway ballads, like show tunes, but in a less playful way. So they're theatrical in terms of the vocal delivery and structure and less in terms of being camp or extreme, whereas I tend to prefer the camp extreme theatricality. But um, yeah, so Running Up That Hill, you know, we've talked about great pop song, Hard to Find Fall. I didn't really, until I heard it on vinyl, I didn't realize in the background, like there's this her kind of like, ah, in the background that's really cool and makes it so much more interesting because like okay now i get why people like avant-garde um but and but what's interesting is she's carrying on some themes from the dreaming about themes of miscommunication and connections and then she continues to explore that primarily like very strongly on sensual world mm-hmm. so hounds of love so i haven't ranked them i the songs on this i don't i know that my three my two favorite songs are cloud busting and hello earth um, cloud busting because I feel it's this, um, I feel there's this catharsis and release kind of more so in any other song I've ever heard the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, like, I love singing most, along yeah, with that in the car. Really, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I just feel like it's, yeah, it's truly one of those songs that makes you feel like your, your actual body and like your chest or something is opening up and that I love the theme that it's about learning the world isn't a happy place, but holding out hope anyway that something good is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's about innocence lost. About but you're, it's innocence lost, but you're trying to hold on to it. The bubble bursting, um, but at the same time, like trying to hold hold on to that that kernel of hope that you had growing up. And there's and there's just no other song really about that in this way. I think there's yeah. not really many songs about like the fog on um, Central World is about growing up as well. But there's not a lot of songs about the process of innocence lost in terms of like childhood and growing up. And so I love that. But just the way it sounds, just the vocals are actually, even though they're not as theatrical and high pitched as I, well, they, they are very theatrical, like musical theater beats, but they're not as high pitched or like campy as I'd like. There are some, it's one of her best vocal performances for sure. Just so strong. Um, so I just love the way it sounds so much. As I said, you just feel like every, like when the, it almost feels like when the A-A-A-O happens, it's almost like the clouds are opening and the rain comes down. There's just that release. 
it's hard because when you have a song like other songs like Under Ice or Hounds of Love title tracks that are really tense, here you just get this release. So yes, yeah, so my yeah. favorites are that and Pellaworth because you know I talk about feeling connected to the elements. So I'll talk about it more in the album episode. I mean. Ep- song episode Hounds mm-hmm. of, and then my third favorite song in it is the Hounds of Love theme song I just as I said I love the tension the propulsion um I love that it's not that's about how scary love is and being literally hunted and I'd like to know more about why she thought of the metaphor of dogs chasing her as what the metaphor for love being scary would be um and she also this song clearly is an important song because it's what the title not only was the title of the album but also the image on the album is yes. her and Bonnie and Clyde and her family friends dog mm-hmm. so um so I and also I'm a really big fan of in case you don't mention on the ep, uh, the song episode I have to mention go on google look up Hounds of Love BPI Awards 1986 it's only on Vimeo not YouTube it's the most goth thing ever it's perfection I love it I live for it so that also but that I love <laughs> I just think it's a really special what I like about it is it's one of the songs you can just like really sing along to in this kind of joy in this kind of unadulterated way um yeah i love that and so big sky is just a pure shot of unadulterated joy i love how much fun she's having it makes it such a pleasure to listen to um and just that sense of wonder something about it i kind of worry that if i were to play it only to like a non-fan they might see her it sounds a little more like it sounds more a little more dated than the other songs, yes. as they might not notice like the weird woo woes and stuff and the screaming like at the end, because it is. I think of all the songs on it, it is the most dated one. But yes. I I think it's really it's really great. Mother stands for comfort. I find really interesting in the context of this album because it feels like the dreaming. It sounds like something that was a dreaming outtake that got put on this album. And I used to always wish that on um, that it was actually swap not on this album that under the ivy was in its place. Um, but the more I listen to it over the years, the more I really love it. So I'm fine that it's there, but it does feel a little out of place because she called the dreaming an album about mankind screwing things up. And this is a disturbing account of the all encompassing nature of maternal love that extends far beyond the bounds of moral and legal right and wrong. So it is kind of, even though it's about love, it feels like it just feels very the dreaming to me and also it has the broken glass, the same broken glass that's used in the Bushka. Yes. <laughs> which I'm like, okay, you've done that before. We get it. But I do, the, as, the, the more I listen to it, the more I love it. I really love it. Um, I just, it does feel out of place. Dream is cheap. I have nothing else to add, really. It's just, it's beautiful. It's lovely. What else can you say? Under Ice, um, I think it's really interesting to think about dissociation with like the deep voices and contrast to remain vocals. Like the deep voices say, you know, there's something moving under, under the ice moving, and then doesn't recognize it's her. And the main voice, like the lead vocal says, it's me, it's me. And so it's because it's interesting to think about how this, the, through the deep voice and the lead vocal, she has it's different parts of her consciousness. So that's what Graham, you know, was talking about how this psychological layers and psychological, like what's going on inside the mind is the topic of this album. Um, all, like, it's interesting also, there's this karaoke, at this karaoke bar near me, they have a few Kate Bush songs, they have the ones you'd expect. They have, you know, they run up that hill, um, King of the Mountain, which I guess you'd expect, but, um, and Wuthering Heights, and they randomly, randomly have Under Ice. Hmm. Like, who does Under Ice at karaoke? I'm kind of tempted to. I've done Hounds of Love, but who, like, I find that they have, the random ones are under ice, and they have feel it. I'm like, what? Oh, and, oh, it's Owen Lynn, my Lionheart. <laughs> like, who's going to do Owen Lynn, my Lionheart karaoke in New York City, right? 
So Waking the Witch um, has grown on me a lot. I used to be a bit of a hater because the demon voice to me, I'm not going to lie, it's silly. I find it a little like, so I listen to this album a lot when I uh, work out. I have this workout tape that I do. Um, and sometimes when I'm with family, I'll do the tape. And I, Hounds of Love actually syncs up perfectly with the tape. So I turn the volume of it off and I put on Hounds of Love. And sometimes I get self-conscious and waking the witch songs. Like, it's like, like not because it's weird, but more because like the silliness of the demon voice. And mm. But I feel like some of the it's just noise criticism that gets leveled at the dreaming is equally applicable to this song. But people don't really apply to this because they have this view of Hounds of Love as like, unimpeachable or something but I do really like but I do really I do enjoy it it's fun I just wish I wish the even voice was different um and I think it's interesting that it's one I appreciate it's one of the few times that she directly talks about witchcraft because everyone always compares her to a witch but she doesn't Mm -hmm. actually it's just not someone like Stevie Nicks who actually does talk about topics related to witchcraft in her music she really never she never really does rarely does so it's kind of a nice little nod to the witch thing. And also because with the witch comparisons really have more to do, everything to do with being a woman whose presence and voice others, primarily men don't know how to digest and understand that as in waking the witch, they persecute you. I mean, yeah. the witchcraft people call it really was a genocide against women. Literally millions of women were killed in Europe. It was because of men afraid of women, essentially not knowing how to understand women. Um, and if you were a certain type of woman, that wasn't okay. So that's what, and that's very much what a way people perceived her and perceived a lot of women artists. Um, so I think it's an interesting nod to that. Like, even if it's not conscious, the kind of the way she's been treated, she's kind of been, like, especially prior to this, when she, like, I think this album, I mean, I don't feel like it, it's true. This album is the one that established her as like an artist that people took seriously. Before yeah. that, she was kind of public it was okay. She was just needing to make fun of her for being ridiculous. You know, she was kind of being publicly dunked, um, especially with the dreaming. Watching Without Me, I really enjoy. Um, my mom's a yoga teacher, and it has always, ever since I first heard it, reminded me a lot of the music that she would play while, like, planning her classes at home, where it's, like, like, in, like a lot of Indian stuff. So it reminds me of my childhood. I like the chillness, but I also like – so it's very chill, but there is that um, – a story to it you know she's watching her family be there without her and i just i just like that it's it's between two really chaotic songs you have this little calm Mm -hmm. um and it's a really pretty nice thing jig of life i love i really love it i it really again grew on me i think i didn't used to love it but it's grown on me a lot and it's one of my favorites on the album now it's just so fun um i love the concept of future kate speaking to current kate especially in the context of Before the Dawn. It's really powerful because I, in my little bootleg video that I don't have, um, even if you listen mm-hmm. to it, but more so in the video watching it, it's really cool to see actual older Kate. Like, it's like she's singing these words to her younger self. So that's, to me, I like, it, I find that very moving. That's my, and of the, and of Before the Dawn, it's my favorite Before the Dawn moment. Um, that I've seen because we don't have the DVD, but yeah. I love this. Co- and she also went in, in the shitty quality video that I have, she's very passionate about singing it, like her gestures and everything. So I love that you do, we do have future Kate singing to 1985 Kate. It's really come full circle. Um, I'm not a huge I'm not a huge fan of the poem. I kind of wish she was had na 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 her singing over under the music instead over the music instead of the 
poem. Because I just feel like the little, like, oh, here's Jay doing his thing. Like, yeah, I don't know. But I just, but it's such a fun song. And it's, again, like, it's good. Hello, Earth, I will wait to talk about yep. the episode. But, like, to me, it's really like the climax of the album, especially building that and Jig of Life together. And then the catharsis is Morning Fog, which, as you said, like, I think it works great in the context of the album, but when people, like, I wouldn't really understand why this would be in anyone's top 10 Kate Bush songs, for example. I don't think it, I, I like it in the context of the album. I don't think it's particularly interesting in its own right, but it makes perfect sense as the closure of this woman's story, of the woman drowning. And what I really love is what Graham Thompson pointed out in that it's an inversion of one of my favorite Kate Bush songs, all the, which should be in everyone's top 10, but usually isn't, All the Love. Because in All the Love, what he says is she contemplates the sorrow that comes from deep feelings left unexpressed. But now in the morning fog, she's determined to celebrate the things that truly matter, life, love, nature, and music. So it really shows more than anything the progression she's made from the dreaming to Hounds of Love, which is about kind of getting caught in, like, your internal stuff versus trying to, like, make appreciation for what's good what 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 you do have and especially poignant yeah. because of like in before the dawn when she's kind of giving a shout out to everyone and before the dawn she adds you know i tell my son and he's there so that's yeah. nice and as she and in the videos that don't exist of it um but like that no one has blue lights of because no one took videos at the show um there's so much joy on her face when she says, I tell my son and she looks at him and like with the most pride on her face. And even though I hate him because I'm really jealous of his, I want it, I should, it should be me. Um, I, you know, it's, it's really beautiful and moving. So I so, do. So I really appreciate it in that regard. And unfortunately I have to get going here. Yes, but... I know. <laughs> I could just continue talking about hounds of love all day. I've really enjoyed getting to getting to dig into this album with you and yeah we're gonna have you on for the hello earth episode and yay i'm excited to start talking about this album yeah excited to hear what people think because especially like you know for people who were is their number one favorite kate bush album it'll be interesting for me to hear i mean i have heard from a lot of it like i have read a lot of people say why they think it's their their favorite and i i do i mean i do think it's absolutely amazing but like Keep on convincing me it's better than dreaming until never, never forever. Keep trying. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this very special episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. Well, I had a feeling before I started the discussion with Zoe that this was going to be another long episode, like the Dreaming album intro episode was. And I was right. Look at this. We have almost hit the two hour mark. Oh my goodness. And this was just introducing the album. So speaking of the album, so starting next week, we're going to go into all the songs from Hounds of Love, starting with the album's first single, Running Up That Hill. And I'm super excited to talk about that one. I'm just always super excited to talk about all these Kate Bush songs. And I'm excited for you guys to get to hear these really awesome discussions. So join us next week for a discussion of Running Up That Hill. See everybody then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.